Hello, we're pleased you've been able to tune in once again to Finding Truth Matters with Dr Andrew Corbett. Welcome to the program. What Jesus did very, very publicly would have confirmed what the Jewish people had been expecting the Messiah would do, their King, their Redeemer. When Jesus walked the earth, he performed a number of miracles, some in the presence of multitudes, others witnessed by only a few. What was he trying to prove? that he was great at magic or just a great entertainer able to stir up a crowd. With the benefit of hindsight, looking back on his time on earth, what can we understand about Jesus from the signs and wonders he performed? I invite you now to settle in and join Dr. Corbett for tonight's episode of Finding Truth Matters as he explores the fifth sign, water walking. We've been looking through the Gospel of John and seeing how John had a very clear purpose in mind as to why he wanted to write his gospel. It is, and this is why we're calling this series, The Last Gospel, John's Gospel of Belief. And as we mentioned, we're calling this the gospel of belief, and that's not me being original, by the way. Many commentators have noted that John's gospel deserves that title, the gospel of belief. We've already seen that the other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, They mention the word belief, they mention believe and faith and things like that, but none come close to the number of times that the Apostle John has used that term, believe, belief, and so on, in his gospel. So it really is the gospel of belief. John had a very clear mission as to what he was trying to do. Around the time that he wrote this, it would have been early 60s, AD, early 60s, We know that the world was going into massive upheaval Uh, shortly after he wrote this. He himself would be exiled to Patmos around about 65 AD, about a year after the persecution would begin under Caesar Nero. We know that by the end of AD 64, the apostle Paul had already been beheaded. Uh, we think there's a, a reference to that in Revelation chapter 20, where it says some have been beheaded for the sake of Christ. We think that's a, an honoring allusion to the Apostle Paul's martyrdom. We know that the Apostle Peter was also martyred by crucifixion. It was a, a late myth that said he was crucified upside down. We now know that's almost certainly not the case, but we, we see that his gospel, John's gospel, originated sometime around that 63 AD period, AD 63. It was clearly the last gospel to be written. He's written it with a heart for his own people, the people of Israel, the the Jews, his fellow countrymen. But he's based in Ephesus. We know he's in Ephesus. We know that he moved there to take care of the mother of Christ, Mary. And you can go to Turkey today. You can go to Ephesus and they'll show you this is where the Apostle John lived. This is where he looked after Mary, the mother of Jesus. And so we we can surmise also by tradition that it was a meeting with the Apostle Andrew who encouraged him and said, you really need to put down in writing your your account. You had a unique account of the person, the life, the work, the teaching of Christ. And from your perspective, the world needs to hear it. And of course, around that time, we're dealing some 30 or so years after the resurrection of Christ, there were still many Jews that had not yet turned to Christ. It would be wrong to think that 
Some hadn't because there were thousands. Even on the day of Pentecost, we read in the book of Acts that 3,000 on, on the opening day of the church who were Jewish turned to Christ. And through the book of Acts, we read up until the, the uh, chapter 15 of the book of Acts that there were thousands of Jews who turned to Christ. They recognized in Jesus that he was indeed the Messiah. He was indeed the Christ. But it really does seem that John's heart was for his own people to recognize that their Messiah, their Savior, the promised one, the prophet foretold by Moses was indeed Jesus the Christ, the one born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, who resided in Capernaum in Galilee. And so John is setting this out, it seems, primarily so that there would be adequate proofs and these proofs are called signs. He divides his book into seven signs. And today we're going to have a look at the fifth sign. We've already looked at the first four. And the last one we looked at was the miracle of feeding 5,000 people. And we saw that in the feeding of the 5,000, it was the first public miracle. Not that the others were done secretly, but they, if you consider each of the previous uh, signs that Jesus did, they were done without him touching or doing anything other than speaking a word, which really, when you think about it, that makes it even more impressive because that demonstrates the very thing that John says in the opening three verses of this gospel, that he was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. And so he's really declaring that Jesus could speak the word and things would happen because he was himself the word. But now with the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus actually took the fish. He took the bread. He broke it. He gave thanks. He broke it. He blessed it. And he actually physically touched it and he did it publicly. There was no doubt about what he did. And that's why we read, as we saw in our last uh, section, that the, the crowds, the people recognized what Jesus had done. And so we're going to see in this that there's a connection between that event and what we're going to see now, which I'm calling this the fifth sign, water walking, water walking, or you know, generally referred to as walking on water. So here we have John again giving us a sign. And what we're going to see is that this raises some questions. It raises some questions about this. And firstly, why does, why does he tell us this? It comes, as we've said, after the miracle of feeding the 5,000. This is fascinating because there was a belief that scholars have pointed out now that among the Jewish people, in fact, we have a, a, a recording of a, of a rabbi, a, the record of a rabbi writing in the third century saying that the Messiah would be like Moses. In other words, not just the prophet like Moses, but would actually be like Moses in the sense that in this rabbinic writing, it's a, a rabbinic commentary on Ecclesiastes uh, uh, chapter 1 verse 9 where it actually, well, I'll read this. Doubtless Jesus 
provision of so much bread to so many people in the wilderness area prompted some to think of Moses' role in providing manna. Toward the end of the third century, this is Don Carson commenting in his commentary on John, Rabbi Isaac argued, now this is, so this tells us some of the ideas that were kicking around in the first century, that as the former redeemer, that is Moses, caused manna to descend, so the latter redeemer will cause manna to descend. Perhaps the same sentiment coursed through, this is what Don Carson, the commentator, says, coursed through the circles in the first century. If the prophet Moses had led the people out of slavery to Egypt, surely the second would help them escape servitude to Rome and he would do so by demonstrating that he could supply bread from heaven. So what Jesus did very, very publicly would have confirmed what the Jewish people had been expecting the Messiah would do, their king, their redeemer. And so what we see here is that there, there was this expectation. We read in the other Gospels that at this account, because they each recite this at this event, which again makes it very significant, that Jesus looked out at the crowds and it's just, he described that scene as being sheep without a shepherd. So we read in Mark chapter 6, verse 34, when Mark gives his account of this event, it says, When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things, which is exactly what John tells us. So one commentator from the 19th century who published in the early 20th century, uh, his name was Professor Thomas Manson. In his article, The Servant Messiah, he has this inc- just this brilliant turn of phrase where it was this, the, the people, uh, well, if we back it up, while Jesus saw the people, he says, as sheep without a shepherd, the people saw themselves as an army and Jesus as their general. I just love the way that that turn of phrase is brilliant because it shows that Jesus knew why he was there, but the crowds thought he was there for another reason. And what we will see in a moment is so did the disciples. They didn't get what was happening either. So we've already seen from the previous miracle in John chapter 6 and verse 15. And if you've got your Bibles, jump into John chapter 6. And we're going to be having a look at the the account from verses 16 to 21 in just a moment. But let's remind ourselves, John chapter 6, verse 15, Perceiving then, this is Jesus, that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now, when you think about what's happening here, in in many respects, Jesus had it made. He had what I think many people crave for. They long for. I mean, don't we all? If if you're on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, and I, I often joke around with my teenage daughter about this, how 
all of my, uh, or I should say both of my Instagram followers sometimes like a photo I put on there and and she sort of rolls her eyes at me and says, oh, Dad, I've got 1,200 Instagram followers and I'm, I'm an influencer. Uh, so, <laughs> whereas I don't think my two Instagram followers quite constitute me being an influencer at all. But when you think about what Jesus had at this point in his life, and we know, as we saw, when he fed the 5,000, John throws this line and he says, the Passover was near. The Passover was near. And, and so what we know is we're now a year out from when he would be crucified because we know in a moment we're going to get into the upper room. John's just going to skip through a year and he's going to go to the upper room. And it's in the upper room that Jesus prepares for the final Passover with his disciples before being taken out and crucified. But we read here, John chapter 6, verse 15, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now, I say Jesus had it made. Jesus had exactly the thing or the things that people crave for today. When you think about it, there was 5,000 people and the, some of the other Gospels have the, the, the way of wording it as 5,000 men. And if there were women and children, that puts the number upwards close to 15,000 people. That's a lot of people. <laughs> that's, that's an enormous amount of people. So consider what Jesus had at this point in his life, in his ministry. He's, he's 32 or so years of age. He's a young man. What Jesus had was fame. He had power. And he had popularity. We're told in the other Gospels as well that Herod Antipas became very aware of what Jesus was doing. So the fame had reached the palace. We see that Jesus was well known and people came from miles away, literally miles away, because they heard he was going to be there because his fame as a teacher and as a healer had gone before him. And when he fed the 5,000, not only did he have fame, he demonstrated that he had power. He had power. And the people wanted to make him king. So he obviously had popularity. He had what every politician craves for, and that's approval. <laughs> he had an approval rating of 100%, well, close to it, from that crowd. But, you know, what we see here is that when that, when, when that lined up, when the very thing that so many people crave had just fall, not so much fallen into the lap of Jesus, but he had it. He had it all. And yet it says he withdrew again to a mountain to be by himself. And we know, of course, he wasn't. But Jesus didn't come to merely be powerful, to merely be famous or to merely be popular. That was not why he came. So when you think about it, that moment when the crowds wanted to take him by force and make him their king, that's when he retreated from them. He went up a mountain to pray. What was he doing there? We know 
we know that when he went up that mountain, and it may not, that part of the world, it wasn't an extremely high mountain, but it was high enough to be alone and to be quiet with his father. He met with his father. The people wanted to make Jesus king. So what did Jesus do? He went up a mountain to be with the real king, to be with the genuine king, to be with the king of the universe. And he spent the night, well, the best part of the night, with the king, the real king, the king of the universe, his father. So now we pick up the story. We've finished up looking at the close of the miracle of the the loaves and fishes. And now we come into John chapter 16. And we're we're going to read chapter 6, verse 16 and 17, these two verses. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. There's a lot there that John is probably telling us. Darkness is a theme that runs through John's Gospel. It was dark. Jesus is the light, as we'll see in a moment as we go into chapter 8. But what we're seeing here is that Jesus hadn't come to them. So it it seems in the other Gospels it says Jesus told them, go to the other side. And in John's Gospel, it seems that they said, well, he can't walk the 32 miles. It's it's an eight-mile boat ride across this lake. We'll wait for him. That's what seems like what had happened. And so it got dark. Jesus hadn't come. And they knew they had better get going. And there was a reason why they knew they had better get going. Remember, Andrew and Peter, the, the two brothers, they, they, their fishing business was based in these waters. Bethsaida, they, they knew these waters and they knew you don't go across this lake at night. That's just, that, that's just foolish. And there's a reason for that. We'll have a look at that in a moment. But it, it's interesting that Although Jesus told them to do something, they reinterpreted it. They assumed that Jesus would come back to them before it got dark. Uh, They made that assumption. They actually reinterpreted what Jesus had commanded them to do. It's a dangerous, it's a very dangerous thing to do. And I think there's a life lesson in here that perhaps John is sharing with us even today that we need to consider that when Jesus tells us to do something, the best thing is not to sit around and analyze it and reinterpret it and maybe figure out, well, maybe he didn't quite mean that. Maybe he meant, you know, we should wait for him before it got dark and then he would join us and then we would all go across in the boat. But that's not what Jesus said. It's an important point that's going to be learned here. I want to tell you something about the Sea of Galilee. I mentioned that the disciples would have known it was a foolish thing to wait too long to go across that lake. And the reason is the Sea of Galilee is actually the second lowest body of water on earth. It's the lowest freshwater body of water on earth. It's 212 meters below sea level. It has a circumference of 53 kilometres. It is 21 kilometres long, 
and 13 kilometres wide and where they were just off the shore of Bethsaida going across to Capernaum would have been about half of its width and so they could have sailed across there in relatively no time but to walk sort of the the uh, 20 to 30 kilometres around would have taken quite a while. But here's the problem. Because it's so far below sea level, when it gets dark and it then gets cold, the waters of the Sea of Galilee get really, really rough. And to quote one commentator who said this, the cool air from the southeastern tablelands nearby can rush in to displace the warm, moist air that was over the lake during the daytime, thus churning up the water into a violent squall. So there's a reason why they wanted to get on with it, but they waited, and they probably waited too long. But they, had, they, they set off anyway. We read... In John chapter 6, verse 18, the unsurprising statement, the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And we've seen from the encyclopedias why there was a strong wind that was blowing. It's because of the, the wind that would come in from the tablelands because it was just so far below sea level, it could get cold really quickly, and that just brought in the the displacing winds that just churned up the water. Verse 19. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. We just need to pause there. I mentioned that it would have been in the old language about an eight-mile boat journey across to get to Capernaum. Uh, so they they've gone three or four miles. That means they're in the middle. They're in the middle, and and the other gospels actually say they are in the middle of the lake, in that part of the lake at least. There are some commentators who really are skeptical of any of the miracles described in the Bible, and they think, oh well, the disciples uh, were frightened because of you know all sorts of other reasons, but. John is putting this account in because it is one of his seven signs to give us good reason for believing that Jesus really was the Son of God, the promised prophet by Moses, the promised Messiah foretold by the prophets, and the Saviour of the world that, the, that Isaiah the prophet foretold would come and be like a lamb to the slaughter for the sins of the world. And so... In what way is what we're about to read actually a sign if only the disciples witnessed it? I mean, this was not a public miracle like the feeding of the 5,000. What, in what way was it a sign? And some commentators, actually there are commentators who say, well, this is not one of the seven signs. This is, this is just a, an interesting little story. It's got not much to do with anything. We're not sure why John put it in. Well, here's why it is actually a sign. Firstly, the disciples were indeed witnesses. They were witnesses. So it was this miracle that we're about to read was actually witnessed. <laughs> it was witnessed by Christ's disciples. Secondly, well, as we'll see, the crowd became aware 
that Jesus did not leave with his disciples. They knew that he didn't leave with his disciples. They saw the disciples head off without Jesus. So we know, thirdly, that this was a miraculous event of what happened because what we read is how the disciples reacted. So we read in verse 19 that when they had rowed the three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat and they were frightened. Wow. (laughs) It's like, hang on a minute. What? They were frightened when they saw Jesus walking on the sea. And I mentioned that some commentators are very sceptical about the miracles that are in the Bible. And they actually go, oh, hang on a minute. That little Greek word uh, could mean around the water. It could mean around the water. But here's the problem. The disciples saw Jesus walking, imagine this, walking around the sea, uh, coming near the boat, and they were frightened. doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. In fact, as we read on in this passage, we see clearly Jesus was, as the text says, walking on the water. He was walking on the water. So... If the disciples had merely seen Jesus walking by the lake, it's hard to imagine how that would have terrified them. And there can be no reasonable doubt that the other gospel writers and John each portrayed this account of Jesus walking on the water, miraculously walking on the water as a sign, as a miracle. John chapter 6, verse 20 to 21 But he, Jesus, said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now there's actually a couple of miracles in there. The other Gospels actually tell of how the Apostle Peter asked, Uh, if he could come out and walk on the water to Christ. But John doesn't, he doesn't tell that because I'm guessing for the same reason he doesn't tell us a lot of other things that are already in the other synoptic gospels. There are commentators very early in the second century AD who saw this showed that Jesus was God in the flesh. Psalm 107 verse 23, some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters, verse 24. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. (laughs) They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. When they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress, he made the storm be still, 
and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. That's Psalm 107, and that is a remarkable psalm. It's actually a remarkable description of this miracle that we've just read. Little wonder each of the gospel writers tell us of this account. And little wonder John went out of his way to put it in to his account of the life, the ministry, and the teaching of Jesus. There's something else that we need to see here. There actually, here's the other reason John put it in, there actually is a link between the feeding of the 5,000 and Christ walking on the water. In Mark chapter 6, verses 51 and 52, Mark tells us of this same account, and, and he adds this, He, and he, that is Jesus, got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Now, I've got to tell you, I was reading that, and I came up to this, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand, and I thought it was going to say something completely different than what it actually says, but it actually says, they did not understand about the loaves. When Jesus got in the boat, Mark tells us they were astounded because they hadn't understood what had happened about the feeding of the 5,000. Somehow, John now wants readers to realize these two events, the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on water, are actually linked there is a link between them. And what's the link? They all point to who Christ really was. They point to his deity, or shall we say, his kingship. You see, the crowds recognize Jesus as king and the disciples as Messiah, but neither the crowd nor the disciples at that point had realized who he really was. And there's the challenge for us today. Do you realize who Jesus really is? See, Jesus, this is, again, a quote from a, a, a Bible commentator from the 20th century, and it's a brilliant quote. I love this quote. Jesus himself knew that the way his kingdom would triumph would not be by beating the enemy in siege warfare, but by dying and rising from the dead. Here's the quote. I love this quote. It's a turn of phrase from Dr. Edmund Clowney, and it's just such a brilliant way with words. This is what he says. He would go to Jerusalem not to wield the spear and bring the judgment, but to receive the spear thrust. And bear the judgment. What a powerful turn of phrase Professor Clowney has given us about how Christ's manifestation of his kingship and his kingdom uh, 
actually happened and it didn't happen the way either the disciples or the crowd at that point thought it was going to happen. So what do we know? What do we see here from this account? The Apostle John wanted his readers to recognize that Christ's original audience did not get it. They did not get who, who Jesus was. Jesus, this is what John is telling us, Jesus was and is God. He was God in the flesh. He always has been God, but he became God in the flesh. And he is Lord over all. He's Lord over the storms of the sea, as we saw, Psalm 107. He's the only saviour of mankind. He is the prophet that Moses foretold would come. As the rabbis of that day were saying, the prophet that would come as foretold by Moses would also bring us bread from heaven. And Jesus did. And this is what we need to know. That was true. What John has written was true nearly 2,000 years ago. But it's equally true today. Here's what I want to conclude with. You may feel that you are a million miles away from God without hope, without any prospect of a bright, better or positive future. I'm here today, right now, to tell you wherever you're listening to me right now, in your car, in your kitchen, in your lounge room, out walking, wherever you, if you're listening to this via podcast, if you're listening via radio, if you're listening live, wherever you're listening right now, you need to know you are not a million miles away from God. You are just one prayer away. One prayer away. I want to lead you in that prayer now. And it's a prayer that I prayed as a teenager. And after praying that prayer, my life was transformed and put on a whole new trajectory. And over the last 40 years or so of being a pastor and preaching, I've seen hundreds of people pray this prayer and their lives have been transformed. And I'm here today to tell you right now, so can yours. Your life can be transformed. Join me in prayer. Father God in heaven, I know you hear our prayers when we come to you humbly and ask you to forgive us. And right now I'm praying for those who are listening to me now who feel the weight of guilt and shame, the emptiness of their soul, the things that they've done in life that just haven't satisfied. And now I'm asking, Lord, that by your Spirit you reach out and touch their heart, that from their heart would arise a prayer a prayer that says, God, please be merciful to me and forgive me and help me from this point to live for you, I pray. And it's an ancient Christian tradition that when we agree with a prayer, we all say, Amen or Amen. It means I agree. And I agree with that prayer. If you've prayed that prayer, we want to help you. Please contact us. We want to get some material to you to help you on your journey. We're not after your money. We're not after anything from you but to help you. Just the privilege of being able to help you on your journey in getting to know Christ. I love Jesus and I want you to come to know him so that you love him too. I want to pray for you and pray for you 
who already know Christ, that your heart will be filled with his love and that his love will overflow from you to others. So, Father, I pray that you would fill each person now with a fresh touch of your love and your incredible passion and heart for others. May all those who join with me now know the love of God the Father, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you'd like to listen again or you've missed a program, you'll find an archive of all previous episodes on our website, findingtruthmatters.org. For tonight's program, select The Last Gospel, Part 10, from our online store. You can also find the podcast by subscribing to Finding Truth Matters on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud. As we've heard tonight, the crowd recognised Jesus as King. The disciples saw that he was the Messiah, but they missed who he really was, God himself, Lord over all and the only saviour of mankind. More from Dr Corbett next week. Dr Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to meeting with you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.